So today for our message, for the sermon, we're picking up where we left off. Uh, We've just started a new series looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and we were in chapter 3 last week looking at uh, John the Baptist preparing the way and then looking at the the baptism of Jesus. And so now we're right after that, so we did chapter 3, the whole of chapter 3, and now we're on to chapter 4. Uh, In this passage that we're going to look at, it's not the whole chapter, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4 in in Matthew. Uh, And this passage is all about the temptation of Jesus. Uh, This is probably a passage that's quite familiar to us, well-known, certainly. Uh, And I think it's one that we sort of understand in part, but I think all too often maybe miss a little bit of the significance of what's really going on uh, and what's really at the heart of this passage and why when Jesus has just sort of kicked off his ministry, right, with his baptism, that sort of the formal inauguration of Jesus' ministry, why is sort of the very first thing that he does is at the leading of the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness, go there, fast for 40 days, and then be tempted by the devil, right? Why is this sort of item number one on the agenda for God to, to take care of, for the Holy Spirit to take care of and make sure, sure that Jesus does, does this? And I'd say the fact that this is first means it's awfully significant, and I think often when we approach this, we sort of just see this as one instance of, well, here's the devil sort of trying to do his thing. What does he do? He tries to sort of trip us up and get us to sin, and so you know, here's Jesus, here's God the Son, he's come to the earth, right, become a human just like us, still fully God, of course, fully God, fully man. Uh, And so the devil figures, well, hey, why don't I, you know, give it my best shot and let's see if I can sort of trip him up and, and get him to sin. Right, And so I think often that's the way we approach this. And well, of course, Jesus is perfect. And so he doesn't fall prey to Satan and his temptation. And of course, he doesn't sin. And so no surprise there. And and wonderful. I think often that's sort of how we understand it. And we miss some of the the greater significance, uh, which is really this. If we think of Christ's ministry, understand, right, it has sort of just officially kicked off. And you have to have in mind sort of, well, what's, what's the end of it? What's, sort of, what's it going to culminate in? Uh, Christ knows, of course, where things are headed, and it's going to ultimately head, right? He will head to a cross, and what will he do there? He'll take our place. He'll take our sin, right? He'll sort of stand in our place and take the punishment we deserve for our sin, our rebellion. He's perfect. He's without sin, right? He doesn't deserve it. It's not that he's done anything wrong, but he takes our place, takes the wrath of God for us so that if we repent and believe in him, we can be forgiven, right? Our sin's paid for. We're forgiven, and we can have life everlasting. Jesus knows that's what his ministry is ultimately all about, where it's going, where it's heading, and he recognizes something. And of course, God, the Father, understands all of this, and the Spirit, who's sort of directing all of this, right, and bring it to fruition, right, understands all of this, that if Jesus is not sinless, then he cannot accomplish that work, right? In order to accomplish that atoning work on the cross, he needs to be that sacrificial lamb without blemish. He needs to be without sin. If he has sin himself, well, then he stands under the wrath of God the Father himself, and he is in no place to say, hey, I'll take your place, right, and take your sin and your punishment and atone for it, right? If he himself is sinful, then he himself is under the wrath of God, and we have no hope, and there's no one to take our place and pay for our sin. And so it is of the 
greatest importance that if Jesus is to go and carry out that atoning work on the cross, well, then he needs to be this perfect, right, spotless lamb, this sacrificial lamb. He needs to be without sin so that he can be in that place to take our place, take our sin, uh, take our punishment, pay for it. And then in his righteousness right now, we can be clothed, being united with him, we can now be clothed in his righteousness that he rightfully has because well, he's perfect. He has perfectly obeyed the Father. He has lived a sinful life. He rightfully, by his own works, has a righteousness that then when we come to faith in him, not only is our sin sort of paid for and sort of wiped, our slate is wiped clean, he takes our place, pays for it, but we also sort of get his credit, right? What is to his credit? His perfect righteousness that he has earned, we now have a share in, and it, it is imputed to us, and so we now stand in his righteousness. But again, if he's not perfectly righteous, if he's not without sin, then, then we can't have a, a righteousness that is of him, right? So it is of the greatest importance for him to carry out what his earthly ministry is all about, why he came here, right, to ultimately pay for sin, make atonement for sin. In order for that to take place, well, he needs to be perfectly sinless. And of course, that certainly spans the whole of his life from the very beginning to his death. He has to be without sin, and of course, he was. But the first thing, the very first thing, and again, this is, as we're going to read, at the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's not just sort of the devil doing his thing. That's, that's true. It is the devil who tempts. But this is part of God's plan, and the Spirit sort of allows it to take place and even leads Jesus into the place where this is going to take place, where this temptation will happen. And this is because it's part of God's plan, knowing that, that ultimately what Jesus' ministry is all about, this atoning work on the cross. The first thing to sort of set straight, right, make sure everyone understands is this that this son of his who has become man is truly without sin. And the best way to sort of testify to that, of course he still has to continue to live out a perfect life, but the best way to testify that, to that is right at the outset, having the devil go and tempt him, do his worst, right, do the best in a bad way that he can, the devil, and of course for, for Christ to triumph and be without sin. And so that's why this is so significant. This isn't just some random instance of temptation, but this is uh, right at the outset of Christ's ministry showing who he is, that he truly is the son of God, that he, he he truly is perfect without sin, and then that sort of sets the groundwork for him then to go and be that perfect sacrificial lamb for us and make atonement for sin, which is the whole reason he came. So I kind of wanted to, to address that sort of big picture, what this is all about, but I, I also want to dig in and read this passage and really go through verse by verse and sort of pick it apart and see what's going on here. So let's dive in. Uh, let's read this now, sort of understanding the big picture, the whole context, what this is all about. And I'll read this for us. This is Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1, and then I'll read through to verse 11. And here's what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right now, it, it's not that God himself, the Spirit or the Father, whoever you'd want to, to say, you know, the Spirit doing this certainly at the leading of the Father, right? It's not that God is tempting Jesus here. It's the devil who's tempting him, but it's not like uh, this is totally apart from God's plan, but rather this is part of the plan of the Father to allow for this to take place, to sort of, in, in effect, serve as a testing ground. Now, of course, God the Father knows how it's going to play out. He knows what the result is going to be, but he allows for this test to take place, and the way he brings about this test is for, to allow the devil to go and tempt Jesus. And this is going to be this test that will ultimately show and prove this perfect sinlessness of Jesus Christ. So, reading on, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, 
he was hungry. As you'd expect, after that span of time, you're going to be awfully hungry. Right? And, and I want to talk about this a little bit. Uh, if you sort of think, just sort of in your minds, think of, of the Bible. If you picture some sort of story where you have uh, the wilderness, being in the wilderness, and now you're talking about being there in the wilderness for some sort of period of, of 40, whether 40 days, 40 years, this should sort of bring to mind, oh, this kind of sounds like the people of Israel uh, right after God led them out of Egypt, right? He sort of delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. And then what do they wind up doing? Well, they're in the wilderness, and they wind up in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around. Uh, and, and yet here, right, we see Jesus here, again, at the leading of the Holy Spirit, out in the wilderness. And here it's for 40, but it's days. But again, this isn't coincidental. It's not like, oh, it just happens to be that there seem to be some parallels here. Uh, this is very much intentional, the intent in this. And in fact, not only uh, were, were the Israelites in the wilderness wandering around for, for 40 years, uh, in the midst of that time, right, they were tested. So this is not just a time of being in a wilderness for 40, whether days or years, but it's also a time of testing. And I'm actually going to read for us Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 and 3. And just to further show the, the tie here, the tie-in with these two passages, Jesus is actually himself going to quote, as he sort of combats the devil and his temptations, from this passage. He'll be quoting from, from verse 3. But let me read this. This is Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3. Moses is speaking here to the people of Israel. He says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. So there we have wilderness 40. And what did he do there? He did this right to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands, right? So you have this period of 40, 40 years in the wilderness, and, and right here explicitly stated, this was a period of testing, right? Time and again, God put the people of Israel in this position of, of sort of testing them. Are you going to be faithful to me? Are you going to obey my commands? Or are you going to disobey me, grumble against me? Are you going to make idols for yourself? Are you going to be led after false pagan gods? And, and, and sadly, Israel failed pretty miserably, and time and again, uh, they were unfaithful to the Lord. I'll sort of finish this passage, and this is what we're going to see quoted by Jesus. Again, further showing the ties uh, here. It says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then, feed you, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Right, so here we have explicitly stated in Deuteronomy that you have this period of 40, 40 years in the wilderness, and it's this time of testing. Uh, and in fact, even if you think of not just 40 years, but 40 days, the whole reason that they're wandering around uh, in the wilderness for 40 years is because they were given a test. Not that the word uh, uh, test is actually used, but quite clearly this was a test from the Lord where they were to go and spy out the land of Canaan. You probably know the story. Uh, they went and spied out the land for 40 days, and then immediately following that is, in a sense, the test. Just like here we have Jesus, 40 days, he's in the wilderness here, <clears throat> and it's right after that, after that fasting of 40 days, that now the test comes. And, and is he going to pass or not? Of course he passes. So for the 
Israelites, right, the leaders from the tribes, they go out, they, they spy out the land for 40 days, they come back, and now here's sort of the test. You know, God knows what they're going to find out. They're going to find out it's a good land, it's a fertile land that flows with milk and honey, right? It's a good land. But there are people there who are sort of established in the land, and, you know, they have nice fortified cities, and, and they're strong sort of in a, in a, from a human perspective. And so the question is, well, how are the people going to respond? Are they going to say, hey, you know, we need to be faithful to the Lord. We'll give an honest report of the land. And, and let's say, hey, you know, even if they seem strong to us from a human perspective, God's going to fight for us and he'll give us the victory and he'll lead us into the land and bring about the conquest of the land and, and deliver the people over to us in the land uh, he will place in our hands. Are they going to respond faithfully like that or are they going to respond quite the opposite and say, hey, I, I don't, I don't think we can beat these guys. I mean, they're pretty big. They're pretty powerful. Who are we? We're kind of no big deal. Uh, so let's sort of lie about what we saw. Let's say it's a terrible land that just sort of devours its inhabitants. We'll sort of, you know, lead the rest of the Israelites onto our side by giving this false report. And we'll say, we'll exaggerate how powerful the people are. Let's just say, like, they're like giants. I mean, we have no chance uh, of beating these people. And certainly that's what they did. They chose to be unfaithful, twisted the truth, sort of led the rest of the people of Israel astray, and you got only Joshua and Caleb who say, hey, no, we'll be faithful, right? We'll give the honest report and, and say, hey, God's going to give us this land. Let's trust him and go up and take it, right? But of course, the people rebelled. They were unfaithful. They had this 40-day spying out the land. Then the test came, and they failed. And as a result, they're punished, and then they get another 40, 40 years of wandering around uh, so that anyone who is 20 or older would perish in the wilderness, and then it would be the next generation plus Joshua and Caleb who would get to actually enter into the land. So we see here sort of a 40 days, but also a 40 years as well, this period of 40 or periods of 40 where there's a testing that takes place and it's all in the wilderness, right? And again, we see these parallels. The whole point that's being made is, you know, Israel, they were tested, and yet what was the result? And it's not to say it's just Israel. They certainly stand in for mankind. Obviously, you know, you go and you test the Gentile, the pagan nations, they fail miserably. They go after all sorts of false gods and whatnot. But the statement also is even God's people, right? This is Israel, even God's people, and they had been given the law right, right there in the wilderness. They had been given this law, and surely they could keep it, except not. They couldn't, right? This is the statement of, of sort of the sinfulness of mankind. God has tested man specifically here. It's sort of recounting the testing of the people of Israel. He has tested them, right, time and again, and yet what shows up is their complete sinfulness. They rebel against the Lord. They fail to test miserably. But of course, now we have a scenario that seems awfully similar for the setting, but the result is going to be quite the opposite. Man, when man is tested, he rebels, he fails, he sins. It's a statement of man's sinfulness. And of course, because of our sinfulness, we're in this predicament where we need a savior. Yet Jesus, of course, right, when he is tested, as we're going to see, he is perfectly righteous. And that, that establishes the basis then for him to go and deal with our sinfulness and make atonement for it. And so there's this very intentional sort of comparison of the settings, yet a contrasting of the end results, right? Man is tested, yet fails. But here's Jesus Christ, man, of course, but God as well, fully God, fully man, he's tested and yet passes, of course, very much passes, right? In no way did he sin at any point, and certainly including this. And so that's what's being said here. There's this very intentional parallel. So after, 40, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
something that's sort of a little bit obvious, but I'll, I'll still make note of it, is when the devil comes in and tempts, you know, he's no fool. I mean, he's foolish for rebelling against God, but, but it's not like he's a total idiot when he comes and tempts us, right? He sort of tries to attack us, and he does this with Jesus, where we might seem to be weak. So here you have Jesus, not that there's any weakness in him, but certainly uh, there might seem to, to the devil to have been an appearance of weakness. Look, he's been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, uh, which at times, if you think of sort of fasting, I'll talk about this quickly, uh, at times it was sort of a show of mourning. If someone had died, a loved one, you might fast, and it was this display of mourning. But it was also done as sort of a, a, a sort of time of spiritual preparation. And that's certainly the sense in which Jesus is fasting here, as a sort of spiritual preparation at the outset of the, his ministry here, his earthly ministry. So he's been fasting here for 40 days, 40 nights, and so what does the devil do? He says, well, I'll try to trip him up where he might seem to be weak. If he's hungry, well, I'm going to sort of tempt him in a way that relates to that. And he does that in our lives as well when the devil or his demons try to tempt us into sin. They're not so apt to try to attack us where we're good and we're strong. They're going to look for weaknesses and, and attack there as a sort of logical. And so that's what he does. Hey, he's hungry. Well, I'm going to sort of try to trip him up there. So what happens, right? If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And you can sort of imagine the way in which he would say this is sort of like a little bit of a challenge. You know, if you're really the son of God, well, why don't you kind of prove it to me and, and I mean, if you're the son of God, surely you can turn stones into bread, and then perfect, you'll have something to eat, you won't be hungry, it'll all be taken care of, it'll all be great. But, right, Jesus isn't going to fall prey to that, and so he responds. This is verse 4, it says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, something worth noting here, Jesus does this time and again. Uh, the way in which Jesus sort of opposes this temptation or the tempter here is to run to Scripture. I mean, Jesus is perfect. There's no, you know, there's no way in which he's going to sin, of course. Uh, but he sort of establishes for us a principle when it comes to uh, us being tempted in our lives when sort of sin is present around us and sort of we're tempted to, to indulge in sin. There's a principle here that's established for us, which is to say we ought to run straight to the word of God uh, and stand on God's word. And, not, and as we sort of run to the word of God, as we soak up that truth, as we're sort of edified by it, then we're going to be strengthened and empowered to resist that temptation. And so here, I would say there's a good case for really being truly saturated in God's word, whether that means memorizing scripture, which I think is a good thing, even if it's sort of paraphrased in your head, you know, there's still value to that uh, as well. But I would say there's great wisdom, especially if you think of areas in your life where maybe you're weak, maybe you struggle, in particular in those areas, memorize passages of scripture that really speak to those things in your life. So that when at times there are temptations to sin, you'll have those scripture verses right in your head. You can sort of call it to mind. You don't have to run to, you know, your Bible app, pull out your phone, which is at least still pretty accessible, or, or go and find a Bible and flip there. And what verse was that? Let me try to find it. You know, no, it's just right in your head. And as that temptation comes up, you know God's word, and you can sort of oppose that temptation right then, right there, with the word of God, following Christ's example here. And I want to talk a little bit more about 
uh, his specific response, not just using scripture, but, but the specific scripture here. Uh, and he's quoting, as I said, from the passage we even read there in Deuteronomy. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, I would probably translate it, not that shell is a bad word, but I'd say to say man shall, there's some ambiguity of is this just denoting some sort of future tense? Is it sort of shall in the sense of almost like a command, like you shall do this, you shall not do that? And often in scripture, shall is used in that sense. Uh, here really it's just man will. That is the best way to translate it. It's pretty clear in the Greek in Matthew, and even if you go to Deuteronomy and look at the Hebrew there, which is what Jesus is, is quoting from, it's quite clear. In fact, even if you read it in, in verse 3 in Deuteronomy, every translation I can find says the same thing and renders the, the Hebrew there quite well. It says, man does not live on bread alone. Literally, it's man will not, but does not a, a sort of a good English translation. This isn't a command to say you shall not, but rather it's, it's making a statement that man will not experience true life on bread alone, on food alone, right? It can be all too easy for mankind to, to be concerned about the body and to think of the most important sense of life is physical life and being concerned about that. And what Jesus is saying here, and what this passage is saying, is that man will not live, man will not experience true life, which is really spiritual life, on bread alone. Yep, bread, that'll, you know, food, that'll sustain the body physically. Yep, that's true, but that's not sort of the real heart of what life is. The real substance of, of true life is a spiritual life. And where is that found? It's not found in bread but rather it's found, right, on every word. Man shall not live on bread alone or will not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? Real life is found in the word of God. When it's understood, it's received, and ultimately really applied and lived out. Certainly, if you think of us, right, real life, where do we find real life? It, it's not in food, but rather it's, it's in understanding the word of God. It's understanding the gospel that's contained in the word of God. That's, that's where we're going to find real spiritual life, understanding the gospel, Christ, what he's done for us, right, and then truly receiving and applying it, saying, yeah, I'm on board. I believe. I repent. I believe. I trust in you, Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of my sins. And that's where real life, spiritual life, is going to be found, not in bread and food and pizza and you name it, right? Yeah, that'll sustain the body, but that's not where real spiritual life is found. But I would say, right, if we're going to apply this to Jesus, most specifically, because he's the one saying this, right, he has no need of his own atoning work on the cross. So if you're going to say, right, well, for him, right, if he's saying man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, he's not really necessarily for himself. He can be saying this generally for mankind, but for himself, he's not saying that he's going to really experience uh, true life on the basis of believing the gospel that's all about him and his atoning work. He has no need for his own atoning work. He himself is perfect. And so I would say for him, right, of course, if you think of Jesus and, and, and you know, what is life for him, well, he has life in and of his very nature, in and of his very being. He is God the Son. But if we sort of think of him, as, right, God the Son incarnate, having become one of us, uh, sort of, you know, on, on what basis does he have the approval of the, of, of the Father and sort of have the, the favor of the Father and, and sort of have spiritual life and sort of standing with and, and, and before the Father? And it's on the basis for him of perfect works, right? The reality is, you know, if we think about it, in a sense you could say there, there are two ways to get into heaven. One is be perfect, which is impossible for us. So you can sort of throw that out for us because we know we're sinful. We have no way of accomplishing that. Uh, and so for us, the only way is through Christ, through his atoning work. 
but sort of theoretically, you could be perfect. For us, it's in theory, it's impossible, but for Christ himself, it is possible. And for him, right, true life, spiritual life, right, having that acceptance, approval, and every spiritual blessing in the Father, before the Father, it's found not in his atoning work, but it's found in being perfect. It's found in understanding the commands, the word of God, and perfectly living it out in every way, in every sense, and therefore being righteous before the Father, and having the approval of the Father, and standing before him, having spiritual life with and before the Father. And so in Jesus' case, it's not so much about, well, hey, uh, believing the gospel and, and having the forgiveness of sins for that. He doesn't need that. But for him, true life, true spiritual life before the Father, sort of relationally with the Father, is found in perfect obedience, whereby he is acceptable before the Father. So that's the sense, I'd say, in which this specifically applies to Christ himself, as he's saying this. So he's sort of saying to the devil, as the devil says, hey, you know, uh, Jesus, you ought to be concerned about your life. You know, you've been fasting for 40 days. You've got to be pretty hungry. Be concerned about your life. And, I mean, if you're the son of God, you can do anything. So turn these stones into bread. And Jesus' response is, yeah, I will be concerned about my life, but not my physical life. I'll be concerned about spiritual life and having that true approval and favor of the Father and being right with him and in communion with him and having spiritual life with him before him. And for me, that's a matter of me meaning Jesus, not me, Steve. You know, what is that for him? Well, it's a matter of faithfully obeying every command from the Lord, right? Every command of Scripture and every even specific command as well. And I would say quite clearly, while it's not explicitly stated, he's been commanded to fast, and that period of time has not yet ended, and he's saying, I've been commanded to fast, right, and I need to perfectly obey the Father, and so I'm not going to eat, you know, I'm not going to turn these stones into bread and eat them, because I am concerned about my life, but just not my physical life, I'm concerned about my spiritual life, that I might be approved by the Father and have spiritual life with him before him. So that's Jesus' response there. That's why he quotes from that specific verse. But then going on, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Right here, Jesus, uh, Satan's kind of thinking, you know, okay, you know, you want to go to Scripture, Jesus? Let's go to Scripture. I'll, I'll sort of play that game with you a little bit. So he says, if you're the Son of God, Right, then throw yourself down, for it is written, and here he's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, uh, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Right, and here, uh, of course, what's happening is you have the devil here taking a passage of Scripture, quoting from it, and it's, it's a good quote, but it's totally taken out of context, and so it's entirely twisted, right? This is a quote from Scripture that's basically just a statement. It's not explicitly messianic, though it certainly can, can apply to Jesus, but really it, it's in reference to those who are faithful to the Lord, who sort of entrust themselves to him uh, to watch over them and care for them, uh, and it's saying that those people who are faithful to the Lord and look to him for, for care and protection, well, what will he do for them? He will watch over them. He'll guard them. He'll care for them. He'll protect them. As it says, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Right? So this is just sort of generally a statement that, you know, if you 
are faithful to the Lord and, and trust yourself to him, he will watch over you and care for you. Doesn't mean everything's going to go perfect and great, right? But of course, the devil really sort of twists this to create a situation in which Jesus would just be pointlessly flinging himself off of what's probably the, the temple wall there, and there's a big drop off, and, and, you know, just to fling himself off of this wall and, and effectively put God to the test and say, well, are you going to show up and are you going to care for me? Are, are, are you going to show up and watch over me and protect me? And that's not at all what the verse is sort of speaking to, and that would be putting the Lord to the test. So you have here Satan saying, you want to talk scripture, I'll go to scripture, but what does he do? He takes it out of context and entirely twists it. And so Jesus says, yeah, you're not fooling me, of course, right? So Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test, quoting here from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. So, of course, the devil says, hey, I, you know, I'm going to give this another try. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Right? Of course, Jesus isn't going to fall prey to this temptation. If you think about it, it it's sort of a, a foolish way, in a sense, to try to entice uh, Jesus. It might sound like, ooh, ooh, that, you know, that sounds nice. I mean, you know... If I do this, well, what, what will I get? I'll, I'll get all of this, right? All the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, all this I'll give to you. But the reality is, it's not Satan's to give to begin with, who, who's ruler over all. It's God himself, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's already Christ. So in a sense, hey, I'm going to give all of this to you. And Jesus could say, it's not yours to give, and it's already mine. So you're not enticing me with anything. Uh, but even if you want to think of not just sort of Christ as, as, as God the Son and therefore having lordship and supremacy uh, over everything, sovereignty over everything, if you want to even think sort of specifically of his role as Messiah and sort of the messianic kingdom that Christ is sort of bringing and ushering in with his first coming and then will ultimately come in all of its fullness when he returns. Again, even still, even if that kingdom at Christ's time now is just sort of breaking into the world, nonetheless, it ultimately will be his. As, as messianic king, he will rule over uh, and for all of eternity the people of God on the new earth, right, as the earth is made new on the new earth, and this will be a complete and perfect and total reign, which again, he already has. It's already promised to him by the Father that as messianic king, he will rule over this kingdom of God, this, this messianic kingdom forever and ever, right? So it's sort of like, you're, you're promising me what I already have and will will ultimately be given, so what are you really offering me? But nonetheless, Satan thinks it's, it's a good temptation. But most fundamentally, at the end of the day, of course, he's not going to bow down and worship Satan. So, right, how does Jesus respond? It says, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, and here quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which he did the time before, but now verse 13, he says, right, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Basically, God alone deserves worship. And here, service is in the sense of sort of serving as God. It's sort of parallel to worship. Um, so, right, of course, it's only God who is to be worshipped and sort of served as God. And so I'm not going to bow down and worship you, right? It's only the triune God who is to be worshipped and served. And even if you think of God the Son in relation to the Father, while equal in being and sort of in nature and essence, uh, they do have distinct roles within the Trinity and the 
the father's role is sort of to be the authority, functionally speaking. Uh, and so, of course, right, the son rightfully will serve the father and does serve the father and honor him. And so he says, I'm going to serve and honor the father. That's what scripture says, him and him alone. I'm not going to bow down and worship you. So, right, the devil realizes, yep, I'm defeated. I, I, I haven't succeeded. So verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Right, so sort of to come back big picture, ultimately, while there's a lot here that I, I even talked about a little bit um, in the sense of lessons for us to learn when it comes to temptation in our lives, right? What does Jesus do? He goes right to scripture to sort of combat, combat the, the devil and, and sort of his lies and how he is sort of deceiving uh, and, and seeking to trip Jesus up. Not that he's going to be deceived, but he runs straight to scripture and sort of stands on the word of God and on that truth. Uh, and so there's value in us sort of knowing the word of God, sort of our lives our hearts, our minds being saturated with God's word and sort of having it right at the forefront of our minds that, so that as temptation rises up, we can sort of jump right to God's word and sort of battle that temptation. But fundamentally, this passage isn't about a lesson for us in how to withstand temptation. We see that in part here, but that's not most fundamentally what it's about. Again, most fundamentally, it's all about the ministry of Christ having in view what it's really ultimately going to end in, and that is his death, making atonement for sin. And in order for that to be effective, well, he has to be perfect. He has to be sinless. And this is the thing, right at the outset of his ministry, already having the end game in view, right here at the outset, establishes the reality that this is the perfect Son of God, fully man, fully God. He is perfect without sin. Not even the devil himself can trip him up and get him to sin. And therefore, he is that acceptable perfect substitute for us who can go and make atonement for sin. And so that's really what this is all about. That's really the significance of this. Of course, yes, he has to go on and continue to be perfect, but this is sort of the very powerful declaration that this is uh, the perfect son of God without sin, and he is therefore able to go and make atonement for sin, which he ultimately will go and do. So as you sort of think about, okay, well, you know, what are our takeaways? You know, you know, it's good to understand all of this, but I always like to have a little application and say, well, how do I apply this? Right? Hey, Pastor Steve, I understand all of this about Jesus, his temptation, sort of the significance of it, but, you know, like, what does that mean for me? You know, what does that mean for me as I sort of head home today and live out my life the rest of, of this week? How, how does that change how I live my life? And I would say sort of focusing on the, the secondary issue first, uh, sort of the matter of the lessons we learn from Christ in regard to how he combats temptation, right? We know that, that we're going to face temptation in this life. We do time and again. Um, and, and we can learn from Jesus here in how to fight against that temptation. And as I said, so I won't belabor it, but uh, there's great wisdom in really knowing the word of God, just having your lives, your hearts, your minds saturated with it so that you are ready as Christ was to sort of oppose that temptation and stand on God's word and that truth to be strengthened and buy it in that hour of temptation. So I just want to encourage us to just to, to dive headfirst into the Word of God, into Scripture, so that our lives are sort of permeated by it and we're just ready at all times with, with Scriptures to go and, and combat temptation. So that's sort of, in a sense, it, while I'm mentioning it first, it's sort of the secondary point and a, and a good application point. But I sort of want to focus on the primary point, which, is, which has everything to do with Christ being that perfect, acceptable uh, substitute for us, that he might go, stand in our place, pay for our sin, right? That we might be set free, our sin might be paid for, we might be forgiven in him and have everlasting life. And really our application, this is what I want for us, is just to celebrate this. To celebrate that Christ triumphed over the devil, 
right, in this passage. The devil sought to, to trip him up, and the devil knew what he was doing. He knew if I can just trip up Jesus here, then this whole plan to rescue mankind, it's all done. It's all over with. All I have to do is focus on this one person, and then everyone else, if, if he winds up condemned for sin, well, then all of mankind winds up condemned for sin, and there's no hope. So if I just focus on this one, then I can destroy all of mankind. But celebrate the fact, this is our application, celebrate the fact that, that the devil didn't win, that Christ won, as we knew, is sort of you know, a guaranteed outcome. This is God himself. He's perfect. It's his very nature, Right? But he triumphed. He did not sin. He was perfect without sin, not just in this moment, but through the whole of his life, and therefore was that acceptable substitute. He was for us that that spotless lamb, sacrificial lamb, who could go take our place. He could bear our sin on the cross, pay for it in full, that we might have everlasting life in him. And I just want us to go home today and just have smiles on our faces and be rejoicing. You know, you can even be skipping home. People think, you're a weirdo, but who cares? You know, we can be fools for Christ. Why not? Um, and just have sort of joy in our hearts and be celebrating. And, you know, Christ won. He, he triumphed, right? He triumphed over, over the devil and that temptation that the devil sought to, to bring about. Right? He triumphed over sin on the cross. He won a victory for us in every way. He was that acceptable substitute for us. And because of that, we have life in him. And that, that is cause for great celebration. And so I just want us to go home uh, and just be celebrating this, uh, not just today, but, but for the rest of our lives. Amen to that. And, and let's pray. Lord God, thank you for, for this passage. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Uh, that you remain faithful to the Father as, of course, naturally you would and did. It, it is in your very nature. Um, we thank you for triumphing over the enemy, for being that perfect, sinless one for us who could then take our place, take our sin, take the punishment we deserve so that then by grace through faith in you we might be forgiven and then we could be clothed as we are in your righteousness that you rightfully earned through your perfect obedience to the Father. And we delight in being clothed in that righteousness of yours, and we thank you for it. Lord Jesus, we thank you as well for the example that you set for us here. We know we're going to face temptation time and again, and all too often in reality we probably fail and fall prey to it but we don't want that to be the case. We want to remain firm and faithful to you. And there's a great lesson in this passage on how to be strengthened in the face of this opposition and temptation. And it's to run straight to Scripture. And in order to run straight, straight to Scripture, Lord, we need to be saturated with it. We need to know the truth of your word. We need to have it in our minds and our hearts, have it sink deep within us, Lord. And we pray that 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 would be the case, that we would delight in your word, that day after day we would just be soaking it up, Lord, so that then when that hour of temptation comes, we are ready with your word to oppose it, be strengthened by it, and remain faithful and firm, that we might ultimately better honor you and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.